Good morning, church. It's great to see you here. It's great to be with you. Greetings to all the people that are watching online. It's great to have you with us as well. Are you glad to be in church this morning? Amen. Yes. Amen. yes. I'm glad to be with you. Hey, we're reaching the end. We're very near the end through our book study through the book of Ecclesiastes. Have been enjoying it? It's been really interesting, hasn't it? I mean, out of any book in the Bible, it's one of those books that pulls no punches. It wants to tell you like it is. Um, it, wants to, you, it almost wants to um, put a mirror to life and go, hey, look at this. This is how life is really like. And one of the things that we heard about last week through Pastor Benny, he was talking about Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 11 to 12, and how life is so unpredictable. Life always, doesn't always go the way we want it to or that we think it should. The rich, the powerful, the fastest, the wisest don't always win at life. And sometimes that's a good thing. But life doesn't, the, the good, the good people in this world don't always live long lives. And the wicked, the, those who oppress others sometimes have everything going well for them. Life is often unpredictable. And today, what I want to talk about in our passage today is, is following on from that. It's how do we live in light of life's unpredictability? And I believe that um, the teacher, or King Solomon, um, gives us an answer for that. But just to recap very quickly what the verses that immediately follow last week. So Pastor Ben talked about Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 11 to 12. In the verses that follow, the teacher is talking about how to live wisely. How to live wisely because Wisdom is the key to navigating the unpredictability of life. So he tells the story of this wise man, this poor wise man in chapter 9, verse 16, if you're following along. And he tells us of this poor wise man who was able to save a city from being conquered by an army through wisdom alone. <clears throat> and so the wise man concludes, the, the, the teacher concludes, hey, look, wisdom is even more powerful than an army. It's mightier than an army. But the problem with wisdom and this wise man was that he was overlooked, right? Once he had saved the city, he was forgotten. And so he saw this reality of wisdom was that it was, even though it's really good, it's really valuable, but it often is overlooked. And in the, instead of wise people getting promoted, he saw foolish people getting promoted to positions of power. And this sucked. This was bad. But it was a reality of what he observed in life. But yet, even though wisdom is often taken for granted, nevertheless, the value of wisdom is there. It allows us and gives us, it helps us navigate through the uncertainties of life, whereas in contrast, a foolish person can't even navigate you back to the city. And that's where we end up in Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verse 15. Today, we're going to pick up from Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verse 16, all the way to chapter 11, verse 6. Because in these short few verses, um, an aspect of wisdom that hasn't been covered yet is raised by the teacher. And that is, wise people are not lazy. Wise people are not lazy. This is going to be an interesting sermon. Let's, let's look at what he actually says here. Woe to you, land, when your king is a youth, and your princes feast in the morning. Blessed are you, land. When your king is the son of nobles, and your prince's feast are the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Because of laziness, the roof caves in, and because of negligent hands, the house leaks. A feast is prepared for laughter, 
And wine makes life happy. And money is the answer for everything. Now, it may seem here that he's suddenly randomly talking about um, feasting and wine and money. But you've got to bear in mind that this is, this is the conclusion of the book. Like this is, We're coming to the end of the book. And he's pulling together all these different threads that he's been weaving over the course of the entire book. And pretty much he's affirming here what he's always affirmed throughout the book. That, you know what? Eating, drinking, money, these are good things. These are good things. These are valuable things. However, in the context of this particular passage, we see that if these good things are used improperly, they can result in bad things happening, right? Then he goes on, do not curse the king even in your thoughts. So again here, we see this aspect of respecting authority, right? He's talked about this before in previous chapters that you know, respecting authority is a wise thing to do. And he's saying it here again because see, he, he uses this picture of this king, this useful king who is irresponsible, right? And he says, even if your leader, even if your king is bad like that king, watch what you say about him. Watch what you say about them. And do not curse a rich person or a person in power, even in the privacy of your own bedroom. For a bird of the sky may carry the message, and a winged creature may report the manner. Pretty much, you don't know what's going to happen. You can't control how word travels. If you have been FCC for a period of time, you know the FCC grapevine is incredibly strong, right? Words just pass through it like wildfire. It's incredible. Similarly, we have no idea how our words uttered in secret can reach the person that we're talking about. So watch what you say. That's just wisdom right there. And then he continues in chapter 11. Send your bread on the surface of the waters, for after many days you may find it. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you don't know what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full, they'll pour out rain on the earth. Where the tree falls to the south or the north, the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. One who watches the wind will not sow, and the one who looks at the clouds will not reap. Just as you don't know the path of the wind or how bones develop in the womb of a pregnant woman, so you don't know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning, sow your seed. And at evening, do not let your hand rest, because you don't know which will succeed, whether one or the other, or if both of them will be equally good. Come, let's pray together. Father, bless this time. This time is yours to build your church. Father, I pray that you, we, we, we as your people, will have ears to hear and eyes to see the wonderful truths that are in your word. And Father, I pray that for me, as your mouthpiece, may I speak your words um, with truth and with your power and your authority. And Lord, I pray, oh God, that we will all be blessed. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. There was a story told of a tourist that was walking through a town. And he came across this, this um, old man just sitting on a log. And he thought he would struck up a conversation with him. Hey, how's things? The old man replied, pretty good, in fact. I had to cut down some trees, but a cyclone came through town and knocked them all down. Did it for me. And Tori's like, wow, that's pretty amazing. And the old man replied, yeah, that, and he continued, yeah. And then lightning came and struck a pile of rubbish and burnt it to the crisp. Saved me from doing it. Wow, that's an incredible turn of events, replied the tourist. So what are you going to do now? The old man leaned back a bit and said, oh, nothing much. Just waiting for an earthquake to come by and shake the potatoes out of the ground. Now, if there was a picture of laziness, I think that is a good picture of laziness. And when we come to chapter 10, we get two pictures of laziness, right? 
The teacher paints for us two pictures of laziness. The first is a contrast between two kinds of leaders. Now, it, the two leaders are described, the first leader is described as a youthful king, and the second is described as a son of nobility. The difference between the two kings is not so much their age, but their character. The first leader is an immature leader, is a foolish leader, whereas the second is, a, is one of noble character, is mature. And so that's the difference between the two. And the defining difference between how the two live their lives is one of priorities, right? If you look there, the first leader put fun before responsibility. And as a result, the kingdom around him, the people around him suffered. Woe to you, O land. Pretty much, it is terrible. How terrible it is if your leader is like this. As a, in contrast, the second leader prioritized his responsibility to the kingdom over fun, right? He understood the proper place of eating and drinking was not just to have fun, was to enjoy himself, but it was to provide strength and sustenance so that he could do what he was called to do as a king. The difference between the two was in their priorities. Now, if I was to describe these two leaders with one word, like if I was to define the two leaders with one word, I think a good description of the first leader would be, that leader's lazy, right? Would you agree? That leader is lazy. Like if your manager came into work every day, walked into his office and just drank beer, watched the internet, you know, watched videos on the internet, surfed the internet all day, you'd call that leader lazy. That leader is lazy. That's the kind of picture that we get of the first king. The second king, I think you could describe as diligent. That leader's diligent. Now, what you notice here that Diligence is not that you just are always doing stuff, right? It's not just you're always busy, nor is laziness that you don't do anything with your life. That's, not a, that's too simplistic a definition. I think a better definition of diligence is someone who prioritizes the important things in life. And, and vice versa, right? A lazy person is someone who prioritizes the less important things in life, right? That's the picture of laziness versus diligence that we have in the first picture. The second picture that we have of laziness is that of a house, a house. And here we see is a metaphor for the effect, the destructive effect of laziness on a person's life. The image that we have is a house that's falling apart. So in those days, they lived in flat roof houses, normally. So when rains came, sometimes you would have to manually go and remove the excess water from your roof. And he's saying here that a lazy person is like a person who sees that their roof is sagging under the weight of excess water. They see water dripping down its walls, but they do nothing about it. Right? The picture of laziness that we get is a house, it's a life that's falling apart. It's a house that's falling apart. It's a kingdom that is in decline. That's the picture of laziness. Now, some of you are thinking, well, I love this message already because this message is not for me, right? If there's anyone out there that can be accused of laziness, it is not me. I work hard at work. I serve in church multiple nights a week. I cannot be accused of being lazy. Now, while that may be true, is there an area of your life, perhaps, that you find yourself slacking in? Maybe 
it's not your work. Maybe it's not ministry. Maybe it's another area. Maybe it's your personal hygiene. <laughs> or maybe it's your house. Or maybe it's your faith. For me, um, I'm very lazy when it comes to house maintenance. Um, now, uh, so funny, when I talked to, to my dad about this yesterday, and I was just telling him, like, hey, um, the sermon tomorrow is on the topic of laziness. He immediately said, oh, so um, has God spoken to you about your procrastination? And I'm like, yes, yes, he has. I'm going to do something about that. Because you see, for me, I'm very lazy when it comes to house maintenance. But when it comes to, say, something like um, studies, right? When it comes to studies, I have no problems working hard. For whatever reason, if you give me an exam, you tell me there's an exam on this topic, I, for some reason, have to work hard. Like, I have to aim for that A or that high distinction. I will just work my butt off for it. But when it comes to house maintenance, I'm pretty content being lazy with it, right? It's something, it's a blind spot in my life. Um, and I don't even remember this, but years ago, when I first moved into my house, I declared on this stage that I was going to cultivate a veggie patch, right? I was going to live off the land. And from that day, Operation Live Off The Land was launched. And I was really proud of it. And it was going pretty well for quite a while until I got lazy. Um, and, um, and not only that, I mean, to be honest, um, one day I decided to go to one of those grocery stores. Not Woolworths, not Coles, but you know, you know one of those cheaper grocery stores where you get the cheap veggies, right? Um, usually run by Asians for whatever reason. Um, and, and I went to them to, to, to see, hey, I want to see how much my veggies actually cost. I want to be able to quantify my hard work, right? And so I went there and I was totally deflated when I found out that the veggies I was growing are so cheap. Like, you know, I was growing these Chinese veggies that you can get three for $2. You know the ones, right? You can get three of the, three bundles, three full, fully cleaned bundles for $2. And at that point on, all motivation left my body because I realized that I was working really hard to cultivate this veggie patch for two bucks. And I was like, nah, that's it. Can't be bothered anymore. Operation Live Off The Land is done. Now, but that's just an excuse. Honestly, it started way before that. I'm just lazy when it comes to house maintenance, especially my backyard. And so in its place, in its place has grown, with no effort of my own, a beautiful, a very vibrant, blossoming weed garden. Actually, this is recorded. It's a garden full of weeds. Don't want to misconstrue it, right? It's a garden full of weeds. I never knew weeds could grow that tall. Like, I thought weeds were like these little plants, these little green plants that had little leaves sprouting up. And no, no. These are like trees. Like, they have branches and stuff. It's incredible. And, I'm, and apparently, I'm not the only one. After this first service, people were coming up to me. Oh, you know, I had that too. You know, oh, yeah. My weeds, my weeds were setting off the alarm and stuff. I'm like, whoa, this is crazy. Like, this is not, I'm not the only one. And that brought me a lot of comfort. But, but you know, that's a point of laziness in my life. Right, when it comes to this, this, my backyard. Now, when I came across this passage, God really convicted me of that. Right? He's literally saying, your house is falling apart. I'm like, oh my goodness, I've got to counter this. But you know, more than that, right? if I'm being fair to myself, and if hey, you're being fair to me, um, my weed garden, my garden full of weeds, doesn't really affect you. 
right? Oh, unless it really distresses you that I have a weak guard. But usually it probably won't, right? You won't wake up tomorrow and go, oh my goodness, Amos has a weak guard, and I can't believe it. Right? It doesn't really affect you. It only affects me, my dad, and, 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 my, and my wife, right? When we walk out in front of the, uh, every day and open the blinds, like, oh, this is terrible, and then close it again. You know, it only affects us for that brief moment. Otherwise, it's not that important, I think. But maybe there are areas in your life that are important, that are growing weeds. Is there an area of your life that is very important, that, you're, that is, the roof is sagging a little bit, the walls are cracking, there's water running down the walls, and it shouldn't. Like, if you neglect your marriage and your time with your kids, that, that has lifelong consequences for you and the people around you. Like, if you neglect your studies, okay, it's a bit too late now for uni students, <laughs> this message is a bit too late for you, but, um, but if you neglect your studies, that, that's going to have consequences for you. That's important, right? If you neglect your faith, if you, you neglect that time with the Lord, your relationship with God, that, that's important. That actually affects you, the people around you, and your witness to the world. That's really important. And so here in this passage, we have a, this wake-up call that's like, you know what? Is there an area of your life that, you know, you may not be a lazy person. I'm not asking you to put that label on yourself, but is there perhaps an area of your life, an important area of your life that you are lazy in? The roof is sagging a little bit. Weeds are growing in that area, and it shouldn't. It shouldn't. And you know, God spoke, spoke, confronted me with this, and I've had to struggle with it and wrestle with it this week, and it's been really difficult because, you know, I think for some of us, maybe you're like me, there are areas in our life, there are rooms in our house where we've been spending too much time in. It's getting too much attention. And it's come at the cost of other more important areas of our lives. Maybe we need to engage in some purposeful neglect of these areas of our house. Maybe we need to spend a little less time in these areas of our house. Close the door. You, you let that area of your life just remain by itself a little bit so that you can see other areas, more important areas of your life flourish and prosper. Like, for me, right, it's the area of entertainment, games, fun, watching videos, right? That area of, our, of my life is just, I'm spending a bit too much time in. I need to engage in some purposeful neglect of the area so that my, my calling, my family, is not neglected. What about you? What about you? Is there an area of your life that you're, you know what, you're spending a bit too much time, the, the priorities of your life are a bit out of whack and it's coming at the cost of your life. Now's the time to do something about it. Now the question may be, well, what can I do about it? What can I do about it? Is there any practical guidelines that you can give me of what to do? Yes, there is. In the following chapter, chapter 11, verse 1 to 6, I believe we have an answer to what we can do. Now, I'm going to preface what I'm going to say with, 
these verses are notoriously challenging to interpret. Like notoriously challenging to interpret, but we're going to give it our best shot. Um, I believe that these verses, as we go through them, can be summarized with this phrase. Just to put it simply, use what you have, do what you can. Use what you have, do what you can. So if we look at it, the teacher advises two things, gives us two pieces of advice. One, so widely, so widely. In verse 1 to 2 of chapter 11, it says, Send your bread on the surface of the waters, for after many days you may find it. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you don't know what disaster may happen on the earth. He said that essentially don't put all your eggs in one basket. Now specifically, um, he could be talking about, specifically talking about um, diversifying our investment portfolio. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. Diversify, right? Now I'm no financial expert, so you take that with whatever grain of salt you want, you know, but that's one popular interpretation. Or it could be talking about being generous with good works, right? Sow your good works. Be indiscriminate with how you are generous and do good to everyone, even in ways and in, and in areas that don't seem to amount to anything, because you don't know what good may come of it. So widely. But regardless of its specific meaning, the teacher is essentially advising us, use what you have and spread it out widely, because you don't know what may fail or what may succeed. The second advice he gives is so diligently, so diligently. Verse six, in the morning sow your seed, and evening do not let your hand rest because you don't know which will succeed, whether one or the other or both of them will be equally good. So don't just sow widely, sow diligently. Work hard with what you have. Now I want you to notice that in both instances, the advice that he gives is in response to and is because of the fact that we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know what will succeed and what may fail. Now let's look at his reasoning in verse 3 to 5, right? He gives his reasoning here. If the clouds are full, they'll pour out rain on the earth. Whether a tree falls to the south or the north, the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. One who watches the wind will not sow. And the one who looks at the clouds will not reap. Verse 5, just as you don't know the path of the wind or how bones develop in the womb of a pregnant woman, so you don't know the work of God who makes everything. And so you see the constant, the, the continual refrain of you don't know. You don't know. What these verses are describing is how little we as humans are in control of our lives, are in control of how the future pans out. So while we can predict and observe the path of the wind and how rain clouds form, we have little control over what, when it actually happens and what actually happens. And if we live our lives looking for the perfect time to act, like a farmer who's observing the wind and watching for the perfect time to plant a seed and harvest, if you live life like that, to live, to wait to act for the perfect time, you will never do anything. If you wait for the perfect time to act, you will end up never doing anything. That's the essential message here. Now, verse 5, I find very interesting in light of our modern technology and uh, the scientific knowledge that we have in this modern age. Because you know what? We can actually predict and track the path of the wind. And we do know 
how a baby develops in the womb of the mother. We can actually track it real time with an ultrasound, right? And so what is unique for us in our, the modern age that we live in, I think, is to fall into temptation to believe that we are more in control of our lives than we really are. That we think that because we can predict what will happen in the future, how stock prices fluctuate and how patterns form, that we are actually in control of our lives. And the, this passage here is when it's the burst of our bubble. No, you don't. We may be able to make more educated guesses about what happens in the future, but the truth is you don't know what's going to happen and you cannot control what actually happens. I mean, case in point, right? Weather forecasts. How many times has it been where I've looked at the weather forecast for tomorrow and it said, cloudy, cloudy. I'm thinking, great, I can walk to the shops with my daughter without an umbrella. I'm in no chance, no risk of getting wet, only to come back soaked, right? Because it's raining. I mean, what is that? That is us making an educated guess and being wrong, right? You, have, you don't need to look far to find someone that says, invest in the stock price, invest in the stock, invest in this property region because you're going to get rich. COVID is going to be over in a month, don't worry. Jesus is coming back next year. But the truth is, nobody knows what is going to happen in the future. Nobody knows. Only God knows, and only God is in control. Therefore, in light of this, in light of how, how our limitations of how in control of the future we are, the teacher advises us so widely, so diligently. Over again, put it in this way that's perhaps more applicably broad. It's use what you have and do what you can right now. James chapter 4, verse 13 to 17 says a similar thing. It says a similar thing here. And I want to bring you to that passage for a moment. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we're going to go into such and such a town, spend a year there, trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. It's saying the same thing here as Ecclesiastes, right? You don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. Therefore, there's a limit to how much you can plan, right? What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. This is Ecclesiastes written all over it, isn't it? You're like vapor, right? Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, if the Lord wills. It's an acknowledgement of our limitations and an acknowledgement that God is ultimately in control. Right? If the Lord wills, we will live and do this and do that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Then verse 17 says this. Right? Really interesting. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is a sin. That's really confronting. Right? Why does he say that? I believe it's because there's so many things that we do not know, so many things that are beyond our control. But yet, there are some things that we do know is right and good. There are some things that are in our ability to do right now. Are you doing them? Are you doing them? Right? We may say, but I don't know a lot. I don't know the full picture. But with what you do know, are you being obedient to that? You know, last week, Pastor Benny talked about doing God's will. Doing God's will. It was a great message. If you haven't checked it out, check it out on YouTube, right? But he talked about doing God's will. And many of us, we responded, right? Some of you came to the front. 
Some of you responded in your seats. You're like, yes, I want to do God's will. And oftentimes the, the question we ask when we, when we talk, come to the topic of doing God's will is, well, what is God's will for me? I want to do God's will, but what is his will for me? And so what we're, talk, what we're asking for is the specific will of God for my life. And I remember I used to think like this, right? I used to think, you know, what, I, want to just, I just want to do God's will right now. Like at 12.36 p.m. on Sunday morning, I want to do what God will, wants right now. But the truth is, oftentimes we don't know what that will is. A specific will for your life. So what do we do? Sometimes we just wait. We wait. We wait for God to eventually and somehow, we hope, reveal his will to us. When in actual fact, God has already revealed his will to you. He's already revealed his will through his word. Through his word. Right? Are you being obedient to that? But some of you may be saying, right, no, no, but you don't understand, right? I'm, 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 searching and I'm waiting for God to reveal whether I'm meant to be a missionary in Africa or China or Perth. Yes, well, while you wait for that, while you wait for that confirmation, are you being obedient right now where you are with what you already know? Like, for example, 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3, says it right there, clearly. But this is the will of God, your sanctification. Your sanctification. What does that mean? It means putting death to sin and living life according to Jesus Christ. Right? What is putting death to sin? What is sin in your life? What are you struggling with? Anger? Bitterness? Envy? Lust? Put that to death. That is God's will for you. That is God's will for you. So while you wait for God to reveal to you whether you're going to be a missionary in Africa, how about you start with what you already know? put to death the sin of envy in your life? Is there someone that you need to forgive? Forgive that person. Is there some, is there, do you need to be generous? Do you need to love others? Do that. Start with that because that's what you know. That's what you know is right and good right now. The question is, are you being obedient to what you already know is right and good? First Peter chapter 2, verse 15 says, for this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. What is doing good? Doing good is living life according to Christ, right? It's being generous. You know what good, will, good is, right? Being generous to others, being loving, being kind, being gentle, loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, loving others as yourself. We know this. We know this, don't we? A lot of us do. A lot of us do. Are you doing it? Are we doing it? And I know um, I'm aware that I'm sounding a bit harsh, <laughs> um, but I think out of all the people in this world, we who live in, in Perth and in the Western world, we have no excuse to say we don't know what to do. I don't know what God's will is. Like if I drove you to the middle of the desert and kicked you out of the car and said, hey, we're gonna be back in three days, hope you're alive but I gave you internet connection. What are you gonna do? What are you gonna do? You're gonna call the cops, right? First, but you're probably gonna look up, you know, how to survive in the wilderness, right? No one needs to tell you what to do. You're not just gonna be comatose and curl up in a fetal position and go, oh no, I'm stuck here, I don't know what to do. Right, you're gonna use what you have and you're gonna do what you can to survive. 
In the same way, if an area of your life is falling apart, or if there's something that you need to do, but you don't exactly know the specific way to do it, well, what do you know? Use what you have and do what you can. If your faith is struggling right now, if your relationship with God is not where it's supposed to be, but you don't know how to improve it, maybe you're struggling with your prayer life, what can you do? Well, what do you have? Do you have the internet? Literally Google, how do I pray? Or search up the scripture, how do I pray? The disciples literally asked that. How do I pray? And Jesus gave them an answer. He gave them a template. Pray that. Start there. Use what you have and do what you can to be obedient to God instead of waiting for what you don't know to do. Instead, we should be obedient to what we do know to do. Then maybe the church will be set on fire and the world will be shaken by the glory of God. If, if Christians, if we, would just simply be obedient to what we already know, it may not be a lot. It may not be grand. It may not be like, but what good will that actually do in the grand scheme of things? I want to start a revival for God. Well, how about you start a revival in your heart right now by being obedient to what you already know is right and good? It starts there. It starts there. So what do you know is right and good? Now, before you accuse me of being um, legalistic and preaching a works-based message, I want to be very clear here. It's not by works that you're saved. It's for works that you're saved. And we shouldn't divide the two. Right, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 to 10. says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your undoing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works. So you're not saved by works, right? So that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Jesus Christ for good works. This is the reason we have been saved. This is the reason we have been saved. To be sold in the, in the, in the world to bring his kingdom to bear on this earth. To see our lives transformed into his likeness so that the world can see the glory of our risen savior. That's the reason you have been saved. And to do good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, I believe. Now, now I'm not, if you are genuinely sitting there and going, well, I really don't know what to do. I'm not, just, I'm not advising you to just, just do something. Do something with your life, right? Do anything. No, no, that's not, that's not what I'm saying here. I'm actually talking to those people, and I believe there's most of us here that actually know what we should do. We actually know what is good and right. But we're just not doing it. And I'm talking to us, collectively us, not just you, me as well. What are we going to do about it? Are we going to be obedient to what we already know is right and good, the good works that God has already prepared before us, right in front of us right now? What can we do? You know, we began the sermon by, by asking ourselves, hey, what is an area maybe that's being neglected in our lives? What can you do about it? What can you do about it? Well, my question then is, use what you have. Do what you can. What is right in front of you? What can you do right now? Maybe it's a relationship that has been broken. Maybe trust has been broken. What can you do? What can you do? Well, but, Pastor, you don't understand. I, 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 I don't know how to mend this relationship. It's too far gone. I, I, I don't know what will make the difference. Well, 
What do you know is good? What do you know is a loving thing to do for this person? Maybe start there. Because who knows? As you cast your bread on the waters, maybe it's going to return to you. See how God blesses your little acts of obedience and brings prospering and flourishing through that. Maybe it's your faith. How do I return back to God? What do you know is right and good in front of you? There's so many devotionals, you version, and stuff like that that you can tap into. There's equipped courses to learn more about God. Use what you have and do what you can to return back to Him. Because I don't want to be prescriptive because there's so many things that you could probably do and I don't want to say lock you into this one action. Because for many of us, you kind of know, you kind of know what God wants you to do. For me, I knew, I know what God wants me to do. Oftentimes, it's me struggling with God and going, ah, you know what, I'll put it off to later. I'll just deal with it later. Let this be maybe a, a corporate catalyst for all of us to say, you know what, no, I'm not gonna put it off later. I see the roof sagging, I see the walls cracking. I'm gonna do something about it. I'm gonna do something about it. Now, for some of you, you may really feel hopeless right now because for you, that relationship is not, the walls aren't sagging in the relationship. The, the walls have completely collapsed. It's gone. Your marriage, maybe it's actually over. Maybe your relationship with your kids is totally strained. They don't want anything to do with you. Or maybe you feel that your faith, you've done stuff that you don't even know where you can come back from this. It's over. It's over for you. What can you do? Well, if that's you, I have good news for you. I have really good news for you. We serve a God who brings dead things back to life. That's what he specializes in. We sang that song. He resurrected Jesus Christ, his son, from the dead and brought him literally back to life. Do you think he can do that for you? Do you think he can do that for your relationship? Do you think he can do that for your faith? Absolutely, yes and amen. He can. If you turn to him. If you turn to him. Turn to the God who can. Turn to the God who does every single day. Hey, if you're a Christian here today, we've got so many testimonies, living testimonies right here of God bringing dead, a dead person back to life. If you're a Christian, that's happened to you already. If you're a Christian, you're an example. You're a living testimony of how God can recreate, make you a new creation. If he can do that, how much more? Can he bring restoration to your relationships? How much more can he mend the broken heart? If there is an area of your life that you feel that is, I've, I've totally stuffed that up. How much more can he resurrect that? How much more can he bring new hope, new life to your life? If you just turn to him and trust in his power and in his grace. And you know what? That's what I want to call for. That if that's you, I, want to invite, I just want to give you an opportunity to come to the front so that we can pray for you. And if you're watching online, there are people online, hosts online that would love to pray for you and minister to you. Because that would be such a desperate situation to be in, isn't it? To feel like there's no hope. There is hope. His name is Jesus Christ. And he wants to work in your life. But, but, what I want you to do then, as we pray for you, I want you to go and use what you have and do what you can. Because hey, if that relationship's over, well, what can you do 
to recon bring reconciliation? What can you do to bring reconciliation to that relationship? But will that do anything? Well, who knows? Who knows what God can do even in your smallest act of kindness? Well, me just praying to God in the morning, what good would that do? Well, who knows how God will work and as you pursue Him, He's running towards you because you, we know that Hey, God's already pursuing us. Everything that we do is simply a response to Him. So if we're going to take a step towards Him, He's going to run towards us. Who knows how God is going to use our acts of obedience to bring Him glory and to restore our lives to flourishing. Come, let's stand together. Let's stand together. And today... I want to invite you that if, if you feel that there's an area of your life that is crumbling, it's crumbled already, but you want to see God bring restoration to that area, we want to pray for you. That's what church is for, to minister to you, to stand with you, to see restoration, to pray restoration into your life. If that's you, please come to the front. There are leaders, ministers, pastors that would love to pray with you. Um, so as we sing this song, I invite you to the front.